Hello, my name is Justin McClure, I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club, and today we're talking about the King of Laughs, Norman Torog. You know, when Justin first suggested the idea of doing Norman Torog on the podcast, you know what I did? I laughed. <laughs> yeah, because he's the king of laughs, right? But here's the thing. We both had a biography on our shelves collecting dust called Elvis's Favorite Director, The Amazing 52-Year Career of Norman Torug by one Michael A. Hoy. Michael A. Hoy, being someone who worked in the late career with Norman, as well as directing the classic The Navy versus The Night Monsters. And I also laughed because Norman Torug, does Norman Torug have any fans? Are there any Torug no. heads out there? I think that if anybody really knows him, it's an association with having directed a lot of the bad Elvis movies, and as well as the guy who directed a boatload of Lewis and Martin pictures, but not the really great ones directed by the likes of Frank Tashlin. So Norman Torug directed over 180 movies between 1920 and 1968. It's safe to say that he's a journeyman. A less generous person might call him a hack. Would a hack be the youngest to ever win an Academy Award, Will? Well, he was the youngest to win Best Director in 1931, the year of City Lights, M, and Frankenstein. He won for a movie called Skippy that's been mostly forgotten, but he was 32 years old, and until Damien Chazelle in 2017, he was the youngest winner in the category. Damien Chazelle beat him by a couple of months. But besides this trivia, I guess what interested me about Norman Torug is the longevity of his career as well as the breadth. Beginning in the silent era, directing all sorts of short comedies with all sorts of mostly forgotten comedians now. In each decade, up to and including the 1960s, he works with many of the stars who defined whatever era they were working in. And the thing about him is that he mostly worked in comedy. That, like, he has one drama here or there. Like, he directed a drama about the invention of the nuclear bomb, the OG Oppenheimer. But other than that, every light comedy star at some point worked with Norman. Yeah, and I think it's important to say stars in this context because he was in the business of making star vehicles. So in the 30s, he directed movies for such popular comedians as W.C. Fields, Eddie Cantor, Wheeler and Woolsey. But none of anyone's favorite movies. In 1943, he directed a Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland picture, Girl Crazy, and he also directed both of them separately. Boys Town with Mickey Rooney and Spencer Tracy is one of his better remembered films. In the 50s, six movies with Martin and Lewis and two more with Jerry Lewis alone. And then finally in the 1960s, nine movies with Elvis Presley, more than any other film maker. Now, could a director work this long and not be good at his job? That's the question, right? I think it depends what you mean by good at his job. Did he make movies that make money? Is at the end of the day what the bottom line is? He made movies that were competent. Yeah. He made movies that arrived on budget, that he worked with difficult stars, a lot of children as well. He had that William Bodine curse that like, you make a film with a kid and they're like, all right, all you get is kid movies now. I mean, William Bodine is kind of the quintessential Hollywood hack, Mm -hmm. which I say with affection. Like, William Bodine was someone who, in the silent era, started at the top, working with A-list people, and then by the 1940s was making Bowery Boys comedies, you know, low-budget stuff. And Torig never... Never went to that level. Torig was always, up until 1968 when he retired, was a studio craftsman, Mm -hmm. you know, working with big, big stars on big, big movies. And you knew that if you gave it to him, you would get a product that would go out there, and for the fans of the stars of these movies, it would fulfill what 
they wanted. So here's a quietly telling paragraph, I think, from the biography that we both read. And I'm quoting, both the Colonel, that's Colonel Parker, and Hal Wallace, that's the producer of the Elvis movies, agreed that the formula for a successful film included the following components. Elvis, lots of pretty girls, lots of songs, plus a photogenic location. Now, Norman Torag worked on commission. He worked for clients. He fulfilled the commission. And for studios as well. Whatever extent he infused the work with his own personality, it's not visible to me. And then you look at someone like Frank Tashlin, who made, like, the better Martin and Lewis movies and made the really good solo Jerry Lewis movies. There's a little spark of madness in Frank Tashlin. He also fulfilled the commission. He also hit the beats. But the way he's using the camera, the way he's molding the performances, the sorts of emphasis that he puts on gags, that cartoonist perspective that he had. But if we watched all of the Torog filmography, would those thematic concerns start to present themselves? You know, I'm not, I don't think there are thematic concerns. And by the way, not everyone has to be an auteur. Mm -hmm. Like Michael Curtiz is a wonderful journeyman. But who? <laughs> right, right. The topical reference to the fact that Taika Waititi said he didn't know who directed. who directed Casablanca. But there is a certain level of talent, a certain level of, I don't know if genius is the right word, but a certain, yeah, let's just say talent, mm -hmm. where like Casablanca is the work of, of like a brilliant filmmaker. You know, mm. somebody who understands the medium. So many, so many and, of and is pushing are. it to do as much as it can. And Tashlin is a brilliant director as well, who's, I guess, more of what you might consider an auteur. Mm. And Torug, there's never that that brilliance. There's never, a, at least in the ones I've seen, there's never a surprise. So much of it is like he puts the camera down. Well, and, uh, yeah, I would argue some of them that we watch maybe today have those surprises in them. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I guess we'll see. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll see. But you know what? Let's start on a bad note. Let's go take a little trip to Hawaii. Well, yeah, why don't we get the Elvis movie out of the yeah. way first, and then we'll double back and tell you more get about his life. Get stench out of the room before we talk about the other ones. Let's talk about the 18th highest grossing film of 1961, Blue Hawaii. The most viewed Norman Torog film on Letterboxd. How about that? So one of Elvis's best regarded films. Elvis, <laughs> and, and by the way... In, I don't know if it's best regarded. I think you'd probably put like Jailhouse Rock or... I said one of. Like the okay. guy made 30 movies. It's, this yeah. this one's probably like number five. Didn't Don Siegel make an Elvis movie? He did. Yeah, and did Phil Carlson make one as well? Uh, I, I think Michael Curtiz directed Mike, some Elvis films. Michael Curtiz did Kid Galahad, I mm. think. So, I think the Flaming Star was the right. Don Siegel one. So Elvis, and I think you folks all know I'm referring to Mr. Elvis Presley mm. in this movie. He, he plays a character, but let's just call him Elvis. Yes. He's a former GI who's back home in Hawaii. Angela Lansbury plays his mother. Who really wants to have sex with him. I didn't immediately recognize it was Angela Lansbury because like first you think well why would she be in this right mm -hmm. it's like it can't be her but also she's like so big yeah. like she gives a so huge really broad comic performance and I don't know I kind of liked her in the movie you know really you know nice to see Angela Lansbury have fun here's the positive blue Hawaii Hawaii looks nice oh man so I actually kind of enjoyed watching this movie for the most while like, you folded your laundry I folded my laundry this was a movie that was built to be seen at the drive-in so you could you know do some canoodling in the car as it played in the background yes this this became very clear to me when we visited the Mahoning Drive-In last year. Just because, like, remember we were watching all these 50s horror movies where there were kind of long stretches of boredom. Mm -hmm. And there's something, like, <laughs> this is so much better when you're in the open air and it's warm 
when you're kind of hearing the sound echoing and you can go get popcorn, you know? So Blue Hawaii is one long stretch of boredom, though. <laughs> so anyway, Elvis's mother, she's rich. She wants him to take over his father's company, marry someone in his social class. Elvis has other ideas. He has a mixed race Hawaiian girlfriend who Played he loves. Played by a white woman, of course. Well, of course. And instead, Elvis goes to work as a tour guide. And what does he get for his first tour? Uh, a bunch of young women who want to have sex with Elvis. And I'm talking young women. Like, they are uh, underage. Yeah. And Elvis in this movie heroically refuses to have sex. <laughs> refuses. Which he did for his entire life. Let's see who he married. Oh! <laughs> refuses to have sex with a 17-year-old girl because Elvis is a good man. He's doing this tour, the, the midsection of this movie, where they're just like paddling in canoes and like they have a campfire where Elvis is doing his songs. Yeah. I mean, look, the older I get, the more I like movies with scenery. Mm -hmm. So I was There's having a lot of scenery. I was having this. a nice time just being like, God, I wish I was in Hawaii right now, you know, sitting on a beach with a little drink with an umbrella in it. Wouldn't that be nice? Yep. And eventually the movie ends and you're like, well, that was it. I mean, it was hilariously uneventful. <laughs> Nothing happens. So little happens. I mean, there's a scene the, the the main 17 year old who wants to sleep with Elvis, like she tries to commit suicide. Not that seriously, though, right? And he, yeah. like, saves her and says, oh, you better not be doing that. And then he spanks her. That's another memorable scene. There are, what, 10, 12 songs in this. The most famous one of which is that one. I can't help falling in love with you. What did you think of Elvis as an actor? He's fine. He's just there. Like, yeah. he's not trying too hard. There's an interesting bit in the Torah book that we both read where... You know, I mean, the common the common conception of Elvis's career is like it was uh, Colonel Parker was like very conservative in his business dealings, you know, wanted Elvis to conform to whatever the formula was. And Elvis like idolized James Dean and, and supposedly like he stopped Nicholas Ray on a studio lot at one point. And, and like, he's like, please put me in a movie. He like got on his knees and was like reciting James Dean monologues from Rebel Without a Cause. And like he, he thought he could he thought he could do that. And maybe he could have. Yeah. But that's not what they wanted from him. They There's, wanted this. Yeah. I would say that if you're looking for, I, I didn't feel the charisma really. I like the, the the moment where they sing like the song at the party, and the parents are like, "Whoa, what kind of music is that?" And it's like the tamest. Oh, like, what kind of music is that? That's the kind of music he was singing after he got sent over in the army mm -hmm. because he swiggled his hips one too many times. Yep. He's just but the, you know, if the movie tells us it's blowing people's wigs off, it has to be that kind of music, right? Here's a fun fact about Blue Hawaii, just for Justin. The editor of the movie is Terry Morse. Now, Justin, do you know what else Terry Morse did? I have no idea. He directed the American re-edit of... Yes, of Fist of Fear, Touch of Dust. I know that, I know that. No, oh, that's no? Terry Levine. Ugh. He directed the American re-edit of King Kong versus Godzilla. Wow. That's what a right. career. Yeah. He yeah. brought that same level of energy How about to that? the big man that he did to Elvis. Stumped the buff. So, a little background on Norman Torek. He was born in 1898 in Chicago, but he moved to New York at the age of one. And that's where his love of the motion picture was fostered. Well, he started as a child actor that appeared in, I think, some stage plays and some shorts as well. At age nine, he started acting in stock companies. And in 1913, when he was a teenager, he was in a Broadway play with Mary Pickford and Lillian Gish called A Good Little Devil. The movie industry in the 1910s still had a strong presence on the East Coast. So, yeah. Before they had to run from Edison's boys. <laughs> That's right. So he acted a lot in, you know, various companies on the East Coast before in 1916, when he was 18, moving over to Los Angeles. 
And the first person he worked for was he worked as a prop master for one Henry Lehrman, also known as Path A, who is notable for directing some of Charlie Chaplin's first movies. Now, he was known as Path A because he lied and said that he worked for the Path A company. So everybody's like, look at Path A over there. That's right. It was a kind of derogatory nickname. And by all accounts, he was a rather unpleasant man. I know that I know that Chaplin didn't get along with him. Many people didn't get along with him. I, I actually saw Path A's grave when I was at the Hollywood Forever <laughs> Cemetery recently. and like, you know, uh, kiss it? I took a picture of it. He's, it's right next to, it's actually right next to the grave of his girlfriend, Virginia Rapp, who... Uh, oh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, too, because yeah. Virginia Rapp, for people that may know, was the woman that got killed in Fatty Arbuckle's, you know, Ho- trouble Hotel suite? Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the one who was central to that trial, yeah. And Norman Torog was one of the pallbearers at her funeral. Incredible. I mean, a Zelig-like figure. So in the whole 1910s, I mean, Norman Torog absolutely cut his teeth just working, you know, unglamorous jobs on, like, the Henry Lehrman films. His career was derailed going into the First World War for a while, but then when he came back, he was hired by Mr. Wacky, a now-forgotten silent comedian named Larry Seaman. Mm-hmm. What a who name. Got, who got him in some very sticky situations. Oh! <laughs> and we watched the first one that Torog directed. Oh, we had some protection for those stunts he was doing, you know? The Fly Cop. And I gotta say, lots of gags in this. I was laughing. Very fast-paced. Lots of Looney Tunes style, like, physical gags. Yeah, before we started recording, we watched two of Norman Torog's silent comedies. The Fly Cop with Larry Seaman, which is... Sorry, I laugh every time I say the name. <laughs> and, and Larry Seaman, if he's remembered today at all, it's because he blew his fortune on making the first screen adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. Yes, that's right. And he played like the Scarecrow, I think. That's right. And if you watch that movie, it's like half of it is in Kansas and mm. the other half is in Oz. So it's a kind of lopsided. And movie. you know that he's a forgotten comedian because if you look up his shorts on YouTube, no music. That's right. They're just, you know, put up there silently because they've never gotten any proper release and whoever did a scan or taped them off like a screen, they didn't have any music to play. So Larry Seaman is out there. He's yours to discover. He is extremely wacky. He's mm. a very mugging, silly sort of guy with big baggy pants. Mr. Shenanigans, I like to call him. Well, in this short that we watched, The Fly Cop, he destroys a whole building. They're crashing into pillars. They're I, throwing stuff at oh each yeah, other. I'll, I'll just say, I love The Fly Cop. I yeah. thought it was freaking hilarious. There's a little racism in there, I should warn uh, you a folks. Little, a lot of racism. The whole thing is racist. Because it's a yellow peril thing where they're basically the protagonist is in like kind of like a Fu Manchu style situation which leads to a lot of wacky and Hong Kong style bone breaking stunts there's a yeah there's a lot of kind of safety last shenanigans of him on top of a building you know jumping between buildings it's some incredible some incredible like real Hong Kong action stunts that we see of just guys falling like and, two stories and, and landing and it's almost like shocking when you compare it to Torog's later films because it's like gag 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 okay it's over he worked with so many now forgotten stars as a director in the 1920s. He worked with Lloyd Hamilton, Rex Lease, Clark and McCullough. I kind of like those two. Have you ever seen Clark and no, McCullough? No, I haven't seen any of them. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll 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 do something on them at some point. As well as Lupino Lane, a silent comedian who we watched his 1926 film. What was it called? Movie Land. Movie Land, which is all about Lupino Lane as a guy who's... He's a millionaire who's in love with one of the stars, I think, is the base premise. He's, yeah, he's in love with like a huge female movie star, mm-hmm. and he's trying to get into the studio, and he realizes the best way to get into the studio is to pretend to be a dummy. Most of the short is 
is Lupita Lane running through like sets and wild stuff is happening and then just being a dummy and being assumed to be a dummy. Now we should say right from the get-go, there's an amazing gag where you get thrown over a wall. Oh yeah. And it's a dummy that turns into Lupita Lane in a seamless jump cut. Yeah, forget the match cut from Lawrence of Arabia. This is the best edit I've ever seen in a movie. And like most good comedies, like they do the gag over and over again and there's a variation each time when it happens. This short is funny because the premise is this guy is pretending to be a dummy. And, you know, if you have two eyes, you can tell he's not a dummy. You gotta accept the premise of the short, Will. So that's ridiculous. And yet they they commit to it wholeheartedly where it's like, oh, we better take this dummy to the shop. Yeah, we gotta cut its head off. He's like, no! Well, let's spin his head around. Let's fuck with his body. You know, like, I, I kept thinking, like, wouldn't it be great if, like, the guy who runs the shop is the guy who, like, like likes to fuck the dummies after <laughs> yep. <laughs> after dark? Well, maybe that was in one of the lost scenes from the version that we watched. So it's just gag, 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 like that one after another. Great stuff. So funny. Oh, my God. Comedy peaked 100 years ago. Yep. And after that, Norman just kept working in the studio system. And then came along the feature film. So all of his work paid off in 19. 19- He hit the big leagues by signing with Paramount, and he began work... Well, first he began work at the Astoria Studios in Queens, which is still active today. They still make really? movies there. Yeah, huh. it's where they shot like the Coconuts with the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of famous movies from a hundred years ago. And he started making you know vaudeville shorts with the likes of Jack Benny, George Jessel, and then he did well at that. So they brought him back again to the West Coast. And in 1931, he made this movie called Skippy, which was based on a popular newspaper comic strip. Now I know everyone's going to be asking us, how true is it to the Skippy newspaper strip? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. We never read it. Come on, guys. I mean, it's a well-regarded strip. And so this movie, its big thing is that it stars Jackie Cooper, not Coogan. Not Coogan. Jackie Cooper was just a young kid who was coming up, and I think he gives a very good performance in this movie. Jackie Cooper was Torig's nephew mm-hmm. on his wife's side, and in fact, Torig became Jackie, Jackie Cooper's guardian. Which led to some uh, difficult times later They in hated life. each other yeah. as it went well, on. Well, it sounds like Jackie Cooper hated Torig most of all quoting many a times that i think he threatened to shoot a dog on the set of skippy that's what the myth in jackie cooper's biography goes to elicit emotion and in fact and in fact jackie cooper's biography is titled please don't shoot my dog even though that i mean the biographer of course he would say this quotes people on set saying that didn't happen and also an interview with turag where turag goes there's no point in terrorizing a child to get a performance because you'll never get anything satisfactory out of that because i've tried yeah <laughs> didn't yeah say that last Yeah. Anyway, Jackie Cooper was also in the Our Gang shorts at the time. And Skippy kind of plays like an Our Gang short. Yeah. And, you know, Jackie Cooper, we all love him as Perry White in the first Superman movie. That's right. That's what he went on to do. In this movie, he's just, you know, eight years old. He's he's a A rich boy, kind of little Lord Fauntleroy type who likes to play in the shantytown. Just this garbage dump on the other side of town with all the poor kids. He loves going there. He's a little two fisted rich kid, considers himself a bit of a boss he meets a brand new friend there another kid named Sookie by the time the year was out there would be a sequel to this film called Sookie the kid the kids are all great by the way they're yeah. all it, they're, it's all in that kind of little rascal style where they talk like really slowly with mm. these lines that they sound like they've learned phonetically but you know they're, they're, they're quite cute 
But drama arises because, first of all, Skippy's father is the, you know, head of the public sanitation board or something and is targeting Shantytown, wants to shut it down. Yeah, stop hanging out in Shantytown, kid. So the main thrust of the plot is that Suki has a dog. That's Skippy's friend. And that Suki, who's cuter than Skippy, because he's in a little shantytown outfit, the dog gets captured by the evil dog snatcher, and they have to raise enough money by the end of the day. I think it's $30? $3. $3. Or the dog will be killed, as is the policy of the dog snatcher. So they do a bunch of, like, hilarious escapades. I'm putting hilarious in air quotes here. Nothing. Oh, maybe I cracked a smile watching it. Nothing really made me laugh that hard. Well, I I like this movie. It's quite it's it's, pleasant. It's very charming. It's rather, you know, slow paced, leisurely paced. It's just hanging out with a bunch of kids in a garbage dump. It gets quite, and I say this with affection, emotionally manipulative in the second half. Yes, because spoiler alert, what happens is they don't make it in time and the dog is shot off screen. They just get to the dog naturally. They're like, we have the money. He's like, too late, kid. I already killed the dog. And I kept expecting, okay, well, the dog's going to come back. There'll be a reveal. Mm-mm. Nope, the dog is dead. We never see him again. And basically, we just, you know, simmer in Skippy's kind of like misery of his dog dying. Yeah. There's a shot when they leave the dog snatcher's place, and it just follows like a long tracking shot that lasts about a minute and a half as like Skippy's trying to get the energy up a little bit more and Suki doesn't want to have anything of it and it's just misery. So this is a movie that yeah, like big broad emotions it's a real like tearjerker and a crowd pleaser and... It's not really a crowd pleaser by the end. Like... I don't know it ends on kind of a nice uh, note. A happy note, yeah. The dad sees, ah yes, I see these people that are impoverished through probably my actions. Yeah. They have life because I see them through the prism of my own son. Again, this movie won the best director Oscar in 1931. He would be nominated again later in the decade for directing boys town aside from that not the sort of filmmaker who was typically up for oscar type consideration that was just the luck of the draw those two years that he happened to direct those two movies i mean the first movie he made after skippy was a wheeler and woolsey joint called hold'em jail he made not the, one of wheeler and woolsey's best it's fun though or it's the first that's the first one that he got like right after winning the oscar mm. the consensus seems to be that he won the oscar because they were impressed with his ability to corral and handle a huge cast of child actors and to that i say we should let him keep his oscar yeah that, let that, him keep his oscar and and this i think points to like what is good about norman tarog like one of the things a director does is direct keep control of the scene make sure that everything is efficiently done yeah there are a lot of great directors who are not good directors if you if you catch my meaning right mm. this man's not a great director but he's a good director people probably like working with him and yeah. be like oh what it's a norman joint yeah i'll join that yeah it's like and i think this i think this ethos comes across in the finished product of many of these movies like he's a guy who comes in and he does his job and he does his job well well we watched broadway melody of 1940 and now that film oh, is fun okay i love broad you know what if if he gets to heaven on the base of one movie it should be this one because mm. i actually think this should be up there with the best of the fred astaire movies it's weird that it never gets mentioned that much maybe because it's just part of that broadway melody series and it's like have i seen that one have i not it's a movie that's just full of like the kind of effortless delights that an mgm musical of this time could offer yeah you got fred astaire dancing up a jig you got eleanor powell Ooh, what a dancer she is doing wild like acrobatics across these giant stages including i believe the biggest stage mgm had built up to that point for one of the final numbers the plot is about two you know vaudeville performers who have been hoofing it for years together on the circuit as partners played by fred astaire and george murphy movie opens with a very charming musical number of the two of them you know in their in their top hats and their ties Doing shtick. yeah yeah i love it i mean th this is what i really love about this movie that it's not just a musical it's a movie that has the courage to pause for people doing juggling routines 
sense. Yeah, it's like a vaudeville showcase. It's just like pure pleasure. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what this movie is. There's just enough plot, and it's never like, I was like, oh, let's get it over with. It's like, oh, mistaken identity that then gets clarified very quickly. Well, the thing is, I love the plot. Like, yeah. I love the conf- I love all these actors. I love the conflict. So the two of them, you know, they've been working for years and years, and then George Murphy gets a shot on his own, leading a Broadway show with the biggest star on Broadway, Eleanor Powell. But it's a mistaken identity because the guy thought he was hiring. Fred Astaire Mm. but this gets cleared up very quickly and Fred Astaire is like no you take the job you know they like you do it that's fine Mm -hmm. and then time passes Fred Astaire is in love with Eleanor Powell but George Murphy is a bit of jealousy a little bit of uh, not too much not too much yeah the whole thing is very pleasant throughout and the dance numbers of which there are a wide variety like there's that really charming one where Fred's just at the piano he's playing the piano and then he swirls his chair around and starts like tapping his feet a little bit and then there's like the big you know huge gigantic numbers like the one at the end you know this whole buffet of different styles i do find though that the numbers work within the context of the movie because it is about the performers and who is performing where and the relationship they have Mm -hmm. so while the songs are not related to the movie going on there's still a tension there that you don't get in most mgm musicals at the end where they're like all right let's stop and dance all right and we move on forward why don't we now move on to 1953, in the midst of the Beatle mania that greeted America's hottest entertainers, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Now, we did spend a Patreon episode last week talking about Jerry Lewis. Let's talk about him again. And that Norman Turog book just cemented what we already discussed. That Jerry Lewis was a monster to work with on set. <laughs> just like a monster. Well, Jerry Lewis seems like a monster to mediocrities so just because he cares about the work the few anecdotes of like norman torog it said by the time he finished working with jerry he hated him of course he would and that jerry would pull practical jokes on anybody on set which includes cutting off everybody's ties pouring water on their head and also bounding and gagging a gaffer in the rafters oh that's real funny that the star of the movie gags you just a technical below the line guy there's also an incredible paragraph in talking about the last Martin and Lewis movie, Pardoners. There's an incredible paragraph in that book where the author writes that they'd selected a leading lady and Jerry Lewis requested a private meeting with her. And then once the private meeting was over, uh, she said, I'm not going to be in the movie anymore. Oh, I wonder what that is. What could have possibly happened in that room? Monster. Okay, but there's another bit in that book in talking about the production of The Caddy where like one of the things Jerry Lewis would do is intricately choreograph the scene. They'd like, they'd have the lighting, they'd have, have the blocking and then just as they are about to film, Jerry would say, wait, I've got a funnier idea how to do it. Now, in fairness to Jerry Lewis, he probably did have a funnier idea how to do it. Who's a funnier guy, Jerry Lewis or Norman Tarug? You're not sure because you just watched those <laughs> silent, silent shorts, yes. Okay, l- listen, listen. Think of the rest of his filmography. Which Norman Tarug, we should point out, he wrote and directed those too, yeah. those silent shorts. And also in fairness to Jerry on this, and I do not want to excuse this man's behavior for the most part mm-hmm. because he sounds like he was a monster. Yeah. <laughs> but it was Jerry's production company. It, it was his money. Yeah. It was his money. So he is allowed to fuck up the shot. If he wants to. Dean Martin would have none of this. Like, Well, okay, you watch. we watched The Caddy from 1953. You watch this movie and you understand why Dean wanted out of this partnership. Because this movie is 90% Jerry. Yes. Just, Anytime Dean Martin's like, all right, I'm going to sing my song. Jerry's like, what's going on? 
This is the movie that the famous song That's Amore debuted in. De- oh, really? One of Dean Martin's biggest hits ever. This is where it debuted. Wow. This is where it debuted. Was Jerry like, why, why don't I get to sing it, though? I'm a singer, too, which was a controversy later on in their career that Jerry wanted to sing songs now. So Dean starts singing, when the moon, it's your us. And I'm like, okay, finally, we got like a few minutes of Dean. But then Jerry Barge says, like, when the moon, it's your eye like a pizza pie. You know, just not like he, the man cannot cannot let up mm-hmm. like dean just want just give him a moment jerry just a moment i mean what i will say though again in defense of jerry lewis is like this is a pretty pedestrian movie that yes. the jerry single-handedly boys like now like, you watch this movie a lot when you were a kid i do have a sentimental attachment to this one this but why this one out of all of them this was the one that was at the video store oh it's the only one at the video store okay they might have had the nutty professor too mm-hmm. i don't know but i watched this one all like all the time like the ages from like what was your favorite moment that you're like i can't wait till this happens ages four to six well i'll tell you what some of my favorite moments were the scene near the beginning where he destroys the department store great gag yep love that the scene where there's the golf ball where he imagines an eyeball in it and he he runs away (laughs) the scene at the pool where he's like dancing around the pool and doing shit yeah well isn't he singing a song there where he's like i mean to us to us now that might seem a little less delightful Mm. but at the time i mean i as a kid, I loved, you know, Jim Carrey. Like, yeah, I mean, he's silly Jerry's guys. Full Jim Carrey power here. Yeah, I mean, he's he is at his wackiest in this movie. I watch this movie now, and it's a little bit. And also, know. the Jerry character in this one specifically seems like, oh, he, he needs some help. I don't think he should be left alone. He's so childish. And when you're a child. Yeah, you love it. I, I was actually amazing. I haven't seen this movie in like 28 years, maybe. Wow. Like, like a long, long time. Maybe 25 and it was amazing to watch now and just see all those like kind of disembodied like fragments of movie that I sort of remembered. Like there's a scene in it where like Jerry's in the shower and he's like got soap in his eyes. And oh yeah. And he out. goes out and he comes into the dinner party where they're like, Oh, I can't believe it. That's a scene I remember. Mm-hmm. That's a scene I would look forward to. I thought that was funny <laughs> yeah. as a kid. And Jerry's like, Oh, well, what's going on? And I now, mean, Dean Martin's a jackass in this movie too. So yeah, that's right. I mean, we could tell you the plot. It's a golf comedy. Yeah. Dean Martin needs to win money for his father's boat. And Jerry becomes his caddy who trains him. And Jerry's father is a great golfer. Jerry's a great golfer, but he can't do it in front of people because he mm-hmm. has stage fright but he can train dean dean becomes famous you know becomes too you know becomes too famous he goes to his head that famous he wins one golf game and then the second one is the one we see in the movie yeah but what i really love about this movie is the framing device oh which is nuts (laughs) so it starts with them like everyone loves these characters it opens with actual footage okay of the crowds outside their hotel room when they were in new york in 1951 they were so big they stopped traffic and it opens kind of like a hard day's night but for martin and lewis well, they're not running through the streets or anything like that no but they're like they're like hey we're we're so famous it's all you know and, and we see them do a do a vaudeville number which is fun yeah torturing the poor reporter that's following them like they jump off the stairs they're like jump 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 and then somebody says hey these guys are really swell and the other guy's like well you know they didn't always used to be vaudeville guys they used to be golfers and the whole rest of the movie is a flashback <laughs> absolutely bananas makes, makes no sense and then at the end of the movie it returns to them oh, i mean the, the end of the movie is the highlight the, a spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen 1953's the caddy <laughs> it ends with them there's an act on right after them 
who are Martin and Lewis, the, the, the Dean Martin so and Jerry Lewis. So does that Lewis. make the characters that we watch in this movie the Sammy Petrillo and Duke Mitchell of this universe? <laughs> I had the same thought, yeah. <laughs> and they do a Twin Dragons like split screen, like, oh my gosh. This is another thing I remember seeing as a kid that confused me a little bit, mm. like, or kind of blew my mind. <laughs> like, like, wait, Jerry and Dean are in this universe? As, as well. themselves? Yeah. yeah. And you have to understand I when you the catty ends of the character going, you guys are so funny doing your shtick, you should bring it to broadway and that's how it ends makes no makes no sense none at all but i mean the thing is what everyone says about martin and lewis is if you saw them live they were electrifying like they were they were incredible live people were beside themselves with laughter and on in movies they were put in these kind of formula comedies where they weren't that they weren't that exciting mm -hmm. and I think the best parts in their movies are those ones kind of like at the beginning and the end where you see them basically do a vaudeville bit. Do you bit. think they, it's about golf because they just caught Dean Martin at the golf course? They just shot the scenes around him? I mean, the, yeah, the famous story is Dean, you know, he would come into rehearsal, he would give as little as possible, then he would come alive for one take, and then he'd be like, I want to go play golf. So what does Norman bring to this film? Well, he puts the camera down, he films it. He dealt with a very difficult star. Yes. Probably two very difficult stars in their own well, way. in a different kind of One difficult. who is passive aggressive and doesn't give you a lot. Mm -hmm. And one who is the most annoying man alive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Norman. Oh, cut up your shirt. What a practical joke, eh? I, I want that man fired. <laughs> yes. I want that man fired. I think at one point in the book on uh, Torog, he mentions that like Jerry had like nine people following him around to laugh at all his jokes. Ugh, what a nightmare. There's a scene like that in The Bellboy. I don't know if you remember this. There's, oh, doesn't Jerry Lewis play himself? Jerry, Jerry Lewis visits the hotel as Jerry Lewis, and he's surrounded by an entourage of yes men and people laughing at his jokes. Listen, Norman Torog... 180 movies there are many other oddities and obscurities in his career like did you know he directed one of the only films to star george m cohan the guy that yankee doodle dandy was based on oh yeah that was a miserable experience for everybody involved not long after the jazz singer he directed his own talk I'm, sh I'm shocked you didn't watch this one <laughs> I, I plan to. Okay. I'm going to watch this soon. I just didn't have time, but it's called Lucky Boy, and that's a vehicle for George Jessel, who played the role of the jazz singer on Broadway. And was furious that he didn't get in the movie version. Well, he turned down the movie, oh, I think. I didn't know did, he turned did it he, down. Did he not? He was like, I'm, Probably. Doing, I'm doing well playing this on stage. I don't need talking talk pictures. That's a fad. And so then he made Lucky Boy, which was just a straight ripoff of it. He's like, he's singing about his mammy the whole time. You know, it's like <laughs> the same movie, basically, yeah. but probably worse. No, I don't know. way worse. I mean, you won't know until you see it. You're right. Maybe it's really good. I mean, uh, his, his career is filled with like bizarre things like that. Listen, he's got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's in the history books. He had hit after hit. Or, you know, I say hit as in it made money and didn't lose money so he could get another job. And he was untouched by genius. But then again, so were most of us. And, and he was very nice. And can I close with a paragraph from an interview that he did talking about his directorial method? He said, I found out very early in Hollywood that the way to last in this business was not to take your studio problems home with you. When the day's shooting is done, I go home, take a shower, have dinner, rest a while, and then go to my study for an hour. I don't go there to wrestle with myself over the imperfections of that day's work. I go there to lay out the next day's work in the cool, cool of the evening. I emerge feeling fine, and for the rest of the evening, it's mine to share with my family. I go to bed, relaxed, sleep well, and get up early and refreshed, a well-rested man. I am at the studio by 8 and work alone until 9 when the office staff comes in. I give them their day's work, and after that, I'm on top of my problems for the rest of the day. What wears men out is trailing when they should be leading. So, props to the late, great Norman Tarag, a leader. <laughs>
And so, as per I usual... I found that moving, didn't you? It's like just a guy who freaking did the work and didn't worry about it too much. Yeah, but, you know, if he just... You wish there were some better movies, harder, yeah. right? Well, he didn't have it in him. No, he didn't we're, have it We're not it in all him. geniuses. And you know what? Maybe he did all that genius stuff early on in his career, and at a certain point, you go, why am I still doing this? All I know is the fly cop, I would, that's genius, actually. You, you would, I would put it if someone's like, oh, you want to see a different silent film comedy than the ones that you know, like Keaton or Harold Lloyd, or I'm saying this, that someone's like, I'm a big Harold Lloyd fan. <laughs> Check this out. And they'd be like, wow. So there was a lot of this stuff. And you're like, yeah, some of it. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this one, subject line, video store porn classification. Why do people always send us porn questions? Well, the letter writer answers it in this email. Hey, Justin and Will. Lately, I've been working at bringing a video store back from the dead, and somehow I find myself in charge of classifying the inventory. Do you know why they ask us these questions? There's not one other movie podcast that talks about this stuff in the way that we do. That's true. That is approachable. We don't That's even, why they send We don't letters. even talk about it that much. No, but just a little bit that we do. Well, you think like blank check... Film spotting, any of those stuff we're talking about, porn, never, no, ever. And that's why whenever anybody writes anything about us, it always says they talk about any kind of movie from from Antonioni to porn. Why? Why can't it be from Antonioni to Norman Turok? <laughs> <laughs> So, the letter continues, I've had to do this basically from scratch, organizing this video store. The movies weren't boxed in any particular order and don't have labels, and we wanted to figure out something new anyway. One unexpected difficulty has been figuring out what should and should not go in the porn section. The issue is less that the content of something is unclear than it is how the content determines classification. For example, I found a number of pink films in the collection. I'm not sure whether these reach the explicitness thresholds for automatic inclusion in porn, and if they don't, would patrons be better served by their being in the East Asian cinema section? This is only one of many such questions. Anyway, this is the only movie podcast I listen to regularly, and certainly the only one whose host I feel might be equipped to handle this. Love the show, Josh. I have a very strong answer for what, what they should do. Full penetration porn. <laughs> Anything else? In another section. Back, okay, back in the days when Bay Street Video had an actual porn section. Had do they like, not anymore? They don't. They had. They had. They used to have a porn porn section. Like, wow, I like, thought they still do. Or isn't it Eros now? Well, that's what they also had. Yeah. You see, Bay Street Video used to do it where they had a porn section where it was like you know you know what it is. Mm. It's that stuff. And then they had an Eros section where they put the pink films, where they put the Joe D'Amato films, where yeah. they put like anything. Honestly, they would probably put the Vinegar Syndrome stuff in there. Well, not not the porn stuff though, like the hardcore. stuff. No, but but actually, because it's like, who's who's watching The Devil and Miss Jones today? It's cinephiles, right? Yeah, I mean, my argument would be, if it has full penetration, it goes in the porn section. But, I don't know, I think... Are you try So, basically, the argument that you're making is, what has artistic value yes. versus the, like, bang bus? Yes. That goes in the porn well, section. Well, it's not even artistic value so much as I know it when I see it. And also, <laughs> think about, think about like, the market. Okay. The people who are interested in, like, a Gerard Damiano movie, even if they want to jack off to it, aren't the same people who are interested in, like, like Booty Busters 25 or whatever. I was looking at the order list of Bay Street Video, and I was like, well, there's a new edition of Deep Throat on Blu-ray. They're like, nope, that's the same edition that's always been around, but it is constantly requested here. Jesus. So people are still buying Deep Throat on Blu-ray. Deep Throat? People are watching that? I mean, <laughs> good bad. God. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, you know what? I can give Will you know, some understanding to his logic in that, like, you have an arty porn section, then you got the more like, this is just the, the, the bulk stuff. My, my question is, is it cinema or is it not? 
Oh wow! Okay. And cinema. Well, what is cinema, Will? My my there's a moment. My, def my definition of cinema is broad. Is it shot on thirty five millimeter film, basically? So, oh, instantly that becomes cinema. And also, like, if if it as penetration, it's before nineteen eighty five. You put that in the arrow section with like the Pinku films. Now, where would something like Pirates go? I think I to me that goes in the porn section. Even though there's an attempt to yeah, like I know. cinema. But 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 I think it I think it serves a different audience. That's a borderline case though. Maybe I would put that in the cinema section. So are the triple X parodies going in the It's hard. I mean, greater minds than me have tried to define what pornography is, mm -hmm. right? So wait, so in your mind you almost have like porn and porn cinema. And those are two different sections. Well, actually, you know what? Now I want now I want to have a couple of different sections. <laughs> Yeah, actually, actually, suspect video used to have a couple different really? sections where it would be like you have like softcore, and then you'd put the pinku films there. Then you'd have like classic porn, and mm. then you have like then you'd have a section for like the triple X parody and the stuff that are sort of real <laughs> movies. Madness, though. And there's then, so many subsections. Listen, he asked when I used to work at Eyesore Cinema, the pornography that rented the most was tentacle stuff like live action tentacle stuff well actually i think I every think, week i think that should be a separate section too there mm. should be a sort of like anime porn section in that basically it's gonna overrun your video store at this point <laughs> you're only gonna have porn sections i love that comedy is just one section you know yeah 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 and drama is just to, one... like slapstick or yeah. like you know spoops or... yeah yeah but the porn man it's very well documented so that's a very unhelpful answer sorry yeah you can go any other direction whichever way maybe there's some options there yeah but you know what i could see will's logic of trying to separate like your hot stepmom part 27 i just think yeah if you have a nikatsu pinku, taboo if you have a nikatsu pinku movie next to like the vinegar syndrome release of memories within miss aggie i think we understand that mm. they're sort of on a similar plane at this point that is not the same as girls gone wild talk about a dated example i don't know what porn people are watching today <laughs> all i know is what's renting this stuff at this nobody point. nobody is, is. yeah <laughs> So this week on our Patreon, we're talking about everyone's favorite bear. He's smarter than the average bear. That's right. We're talking about the classic 2010 Yogi Bear film. No, starring... we're not. No, no we're, we're not. not. We're talking about the first Yogi Bear film, 1964's Hey There, It's Yogi Bear. We are so going to do <laughs> Dan Aykroyd Yogi Bear Oh, movie. God. Can you imagine? No, we wanted to. It's brand new on a beautiful Blu-ray from Warner Archive. Newly scanned print. The, the first Hanna-Barbera attempt at a theatrical feature and we had not i had no nostalgia for this movie had never seen it yeah went in hoping oh maybe there's something there so we talk about our relationship with Hanna barbera with the bear himself mm -hmm. with his and and like what does a 1964 Hanna barbera feature film that went to theaters look like we find out you may be shocked or you may not be <laughs> when you hear us talk about it check it out patreon.com slash the important cinema club so next week we love our movie universes, right, Will? Oh, Marvel, DC, we love that stuff. I love I love being on a subscription model for movies. Where it's like, you gotta watch all of these because they're all connected. So in 2012, when The Avengers came out, that changed Hollywood forever, or at least for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like, every studio was trying to do a, a new, like, interconnected universe model with its properties. And no studio has fumbled it more than Universal with their monsters. The original connected universe that's right back in the days of boris karloff and bela lugosi they had their own viewisk universe going and over the last 20 years there have been repeated attempts to create a new franchise with dracula the frankenstein monster the wolfman all your favorites okay so the way that we're gonna go into this is 
We're gonna watch some bad movies. How about we sweeten the pot a little bit? Why don't we watch one of the early Monster Rally films like House of Dracula? Let's watch House of Dracula. To see how they did it. Okay. And then we're gonna watch Van Helsing, Dracula Untold, and The Mummy. With Tom Cruise. Now those are three distinct periods of them trying to restart it. Oh man, this is gonna hurt. Yeah, it's gonna hurt. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, the monster of the dark universe. <laughs> Ooh. And we're gonna, of course, talk about the movies that never were. Joe Dante's Mummy. Oh, really? He was supposed to do a mummy at one That's point. That's right. John Landis's Creature of the Black Lagoon. Yeah, this. You know what? There could be fun to be had here. How is it so? It's so easy. It's so easy. Who to doesn't? Do who doesn't love a Dracula? We all yeah. love Dracula. Isn't it wild that there's never been an official Creature of the Black Lagoon reboot? They, Since that first wave that they did? They should hire you. Yeah, they should you, hire you. Me. You should do it. So that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Until then, my name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. It's time for the Important Cinema Club Hollywood Corner. <laughs> yeah, we got our sources. We're going to talk about the dirt. The industry news, folks. Industry news and views. What's happening on the business end of Hollywood? The name on everyone's lips is David Zaslav, Warner Brothers CEO and former reality TV mogul. Wait, oh, that's right, because he was Discovery, right? He came that's from right. that. Discovery bought Warner Brothers, mm -hmm. which seems wrong to me. Yes. But I guess that's the and way that's it where works. where the money is, that's, right? They bought it. What can you say? So this man who has no interest in movies at all, put in charge of movies. Who we keep being told actually loves movies. Yeah, he keeps saying it. He's like, yeah. I love content. I love content more than content. Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg keep going into rooms with them and coming out and saying, well, he tells us that he loves movies. Yeah, you mean Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg are like, we got to put a stop to this. Well, we got to go talk to him. This past week brought the news that he wanted to, while well, he was gutting Turner Classic Movies. Restructuring it, Will. Right. He was getting... That means you're gutting it. That's like vulture capitalism shit. I mean, he was laying off most of the leadership staff. They assure us, they assure us that the programming will continue. <laughs> they always do. Yeah, there's also news to just in the last few days that they're going to sell off $500 million of I think the, half of their catalog is what they said. Of, for $500 million. Of their, of their music catalog specifically, oh, right? Oh, music originally. I think okay. so. With like, you know, stuff like Purple Rain, mm. you know, the Batman soundtrack, all your favorites. Man, whoever takes up the job after him will have nothing. It'll just be in... Does he just want to sell it to Disney? Is that what they're building up to? I don't so know. can take a big paycheck and be like, all right, goodbye, everybody. So I'm sure somebody could come along and tell me that he's no worse than any other studio executive yes. and maybe he's not yeah all studio executives are evil that is the rule all i know is that this guy absolutely loves being the public face of this like if you ask me to name like name me one other studio executive at warner brother I'd be like i don't know i, could, I, don't know. I could never tell you yeah not jack warner that's <laughs> yeah, the other one go. i can name yeah wacko jacko and dot right that, <laughs> that's right that's right all involved but david's Adlaw, like he's out there i guess he's the face of it He's the face of everything bad right now. Yeah, because like the guy that was in charge before who was running DC, like he was making a shit show of it too. I have a vague memory P Pearlman of Pearlman was his name, no, was it? Ike Pearlman is who? the guy who was in charge of Marvel. Marvel. Yeah. yeah, and he's bad. Yeah, and he got fired. Okay. Like, they, they kicked him to the curb. Interesting. Well. Yeah, he was really bad and just making terrible decisions. He's one of those guys that they're like, we only have one photo of him over all these years. Right. But David Zaslav, yeah, he's out there. And, you know, I see the stuff that he's doing and I'm like, what does he want? Like, he's probably so rich, right? Like, he could stop working tomorrow and he'd be fine. Well, he was hired to make cuts. And that's, they want to cut like a billion dollars is what they said. It's sort of ridiculous. I mean, it's cliche to say, but he is someone who knows the dollar cost of everything and the value of nothing. Like Turner Classic Movies, for example, whatever small fraction you save 
like it's not worth it drip in the bucket yeah. it's not worth the publicity of having spielberg scorsese and pt anderson like having to call an emergency meeting like, <laughs> on their group chat and be yeah like, all right we got to get over to david's house like it bad vibes bad vibes are emanating like whatever was saved whatever the tax write-off was shelving batgirl it, it doesn't it wasn't worth it. it doesn't seem worth being known as the studio that will just destroy a movie for a tax write-off See, the thing about like you know bob chapin See, I know all the names now of the executives who was in charge of Disney. He did a very bad job as well, mm-hmm. and they fired him. Bob Iger came in because Bob Iger has been doing it. For, this is a man. He who, was before Bob yeah, Chapek as well. Like, they keep trying to get rid of him, but he does too good a job, and they're like, "Well, we need Bob Iger back." And so, like, he eliminated a bunch of stuff off Disney Plus. Nobody made an uproar because nobody cares. Like <laughs> he did it correctly of just completely nuking the stuff. While David Zaslav, who just has no idea what any of this stuff is, well, he's not he's not thinking very strategically, is no. he? I mean, well, people talk about Max, which used to be HBO Max, which we don't have here in Canada, by the way. Mm-hmm. But of course, we have Crave, right, the HBO right. of Canada. But apparently, if you go on Max, you'll now see like HBO stuff like Succession right next to like my nine hundred pound life. Yeah. The Great Cleavage Bake Off or, you know, yeah. whatever's on like they're just there together and like people don't like that. The people no, they don't. The people who like HBO don't want to see that shit. Fuck, the people who like Discovery don't want to see the HBO shit. It's making nobody happy. You saw that thing a couple weeks ago where they created this new sorting strategy where every everybody who was not an actor was sorted into a general oh, category. I saw that as content creators. As content creators. So with Raging Bull, the content creators were Irving Chartoff, Jake <laughs> LaMotta, because Jake LaMotta wrote the book it was based yeah. on. Martin Scorsese, Paul yeah. Schrader, just a soup of names. They changed that it's yeah. people are like what the hell is this and like these are not the sorts well, of mistakes of being like we want to devalue these people and take away their power that's right and the the good news is that they're doing it very ineptly oh terrible everybody everybody can see it an operation like like marvel studios which also in its own way devalues talent mm-hmm. devalues the human factor they do it brilliantly. Yeah, because people are like, we love Marvel movies, yeah! Well, there's like a wasteland of a thousand, thousands and thousands of people that were just like chewed up and spit out by the machine. I mean, you saw this week that one of Marvel's TV shows has an AI opening credit sequence. Oh, yeah, it does. And the director who like directed the series is like, yeah, we wanted it to represent blah, blah, blah about the show. I don't really know how this works. Well, you know how it works? It takes other people's works and it copies them and it makes that as the AI sequences. Yeah. So anyway, lots of, lots of bad stuff coming out hollywood i think yep not good they should get us to run it but it's interesting that it's all out in the open right now which yeah. it never really was before it's funny you see people like david zaslav and elon musk and all these ceos who i i shouldn't know who they are no. in, in a functioning society i who should not know who they just are just as evil as they are now but like before we just didn't hear about and it, it. it it's it's fun to see it and just be like oh these guys like they really are that stupid yeah like they're just that stupid. like just because they're they're running these companies doesn't mean they're like they're good <laughs> you need to realize this Every few weeks. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because you want to live in your bubble and be like, listen, he's the executive of a ma- major movie chain. People like Jack Warner or, or Harry Cohen. Cohen yeah. yeah, they weren't bad people, right? Yeah. It's like, Ugh. Tell you something about Jack Warner and Harry Cohen. They liked movies. <laughs> they did. They enjoyed movies. You know who liked movies? Golan and Globus. Yeah, they lo- 
loved movies. Get somebody who loves movies in there who's just as evil, I'm sure, but that loves the movies. And also, can we get some legislation or something that like separates the movie studios from Holy the shit, from, yeah. from the international multinational corporations? Because can we just get these studios in the business of making movies? Can where... we also get like a deal that movie studios can't own their own streaming service? Yeah, that, 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 is, that would be good. That would be good. That's like movie studios owning their own theaters. The Paramount like, decree, yeah, which was o- overturned, was it not? Yep. Let's get yeah. somebody else in there. Get it overturned. Just movies, studios, make your goddamn movies. 